0: Let's begin with the reading of God's word. I'd like us to read verses 1 through 8, although our focus this morning will be in verses 6, 7, and 8. Please read along with me. This is Timothy. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Would you pray with me? Father, we stop now and we ask you once again for your blessing, your guidance. We recognize both our complete need for your word and our utter reliance upon your Holy Spirit to receive it. And so, Lord, we ask those things of you. We ask confidently as your children, we know that you work for our good. We know that everything that you lead us through is for our sanctification and ultimately for your glory. And we thank you for putting your word in front of us this morning. We ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Turning to 2 Timothy, one of the things that I love about this book is we're finding Paul at the end of his life. And he puts on display for us some of the deep conviction that he has come to live his entire ministry out in light of. Uh, There are two things in particular that I think we see in Paul in the book of 2 Timothy, that he lives with them joined hand in hand. uh, And it is so difficult for us to do this. One of those things is that he lives and ministers always in the awareness of the union that he has with Christ. Uh, This drives so much of his thinking, his teaching, his ministry. Uh, Let me just point that out to you for a moment in 2 Timothy. There are so many blessings he describes and exemplifies, as we'll see this morning, um, that he recognizes as only being possible in the context of union with Christ. So even in 2 Timothy one one, he speaks of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He understands that gift to be in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 9, he speaks of God's purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Verse 13 of the same chapter, he speaks of faith and love, and he says... Follow the, the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't speak of any of these blessings outside of the context of union with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1, he speaks of grace that strengthens us that's in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 10, he speaks of salvation that's in Christ Jesus. And the last example I'll give you, and it leads us to our passage this morning, is 2 Timothy three twelve might glance there. He's just finished listing out the incredible persecutions he has been enduring. And he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In what frame do we see godliness lived out? It's in the context of union with Christ. And that's where we begin to see the, the two sides come together that I was speaking about. Because here's a man who is intimately aware of the necessity of his union with Christ. He is resting in him. And yet, when we look at 2 Timothy, we find a book that is full of imperatives, full of commands. Paul understands that um, our union with Christ is a reality that drives and fuels and even demands a certain sort of living that comes as a result of it. So the commands that we read in 2 Timothy are not issued apart from his his complete awareness of the necessity of the new birth. And yet, he does not speak of the new birth in a way that separates it from its necessary consequences in physical, temporal sorts of ways. And it's, that, it's, it's those two parts coming together that we see set on display for us in the life of the Apostle Paul, and in particular, in the way he ends his life. And that's what we're reading in 2 Timothy. He has come to the end. And in particular in verse 7, he he says some powerful words, some of which have even become figures of speech for us. You see in chapter 4, verse 7, for example, he says, I have fought the good fight. Well, that's so common for us now. It's just an expression, fight the good fight. Well, this is is where we get this from. What I want us to see this morning, in particular in verses 6, 7, and 8, is that when we are living in union with christ we are given gifts as a result that are made manifest in our living and in particular paul displays for us four gifts that come as a result of union with christ we see it in his words and we see it in the situation in which he speaks those words and that's what i'd like us to think about together this morning Let's begin looking through these gifts. This is the context, the, the, the structure we're going to use as we go through. We're going to look at each of the four gifts that Paul displays for us as he's writing these things. Res, gifts that come as a result of our union with Christ. The first gift that we can see in Paul is the gift of perseverance. We see it in verse 6. Look at the setting of his life in which he's going to speak the words of verse 7. Verse 6, Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. It has come. He knows it's not coming tomorrow because he's going to ask Timothy later in the letter to try to come visit him before winter time. So he sees that there may be some delay in his departure from this life but it's clear in the letter that he knows he's not getting out of prison. He knows he has come to his end. He has spoken of his life in terms of a Race at several places before. But he has never spoken of his race as being finished before. One of the places he speaks about this most powerfully is in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3. I'd like to read a a section from that chapter. You can flip there if you'd like. Or maybe you just want to listen and hear how he speaks about his life, beginning in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, that I may know him. So notice in verse 10 now, he's going to start to list what he desires, what he is pursuing, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Now listen to how he describes the rest of his life. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He sees now the rest of his life as he is running his race in these terms. It is clearly in light of what God has done for him in Christ And the way he's going to experience it is he is going to zealously pursue these goals that he says he's pursuing. He wants to know him. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to be honored by getting to share in his sufferings. He wants to become like him in his death. And he says he's straining forward toward these things. It's the word that we use to get the word agony. He's agonizing in his his desire to, to move in this direction. He says something else in 1 Corinthians 9.27. I always thought this was interesting how he phrases this. He says, says, but I keep my body, excuse me, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself uh, should be disqualified. That seems odd. Is he concerned about losing his salvation? Well, for goodness sakes, Paul is the one through whom we receive so much of our understanding that God is the one who who rescued us. He is the one who brings us to life. He's the one who holds us. Paul's the one who, who, who laid that out for us so that we might understand it. He's not struggling in that way. What he is doing is making clear that as he walks in his union with Christ, he knows what is, what is laid ahead. He knows what he is to pursue. He's telling us he does that in such a way that he is always watching for disqualifications, for things that might lead him astray, He is deliberately and intentionally pursuing the path that God has laid out for him. We could say it like this. We see it in Paul. Paul is a man who insists on perseverance. He was not willing to speak of his course as being finished until he knew his death was imminent. He understood the need to persevere. He understood perseverance as a gift that God gives his children. And he would say to us, as we are, um, well, we may be at our final day today. We have no idea. But uh, so far as we know, this is not our last day. And I, he would say to us, have you trusted in Christ in the past? If you have, praise God. That is his work in you. Do you trust him today? Are you continuing to pursue him by faith? Does your life still show vibrant evidence of that threefold pursuit that Paul described in the book of Philippians? to gain him, to be found in him, and to know him? Or as he clarifies in Galatians 4, 9, to be known by him. Is that something that we are zealously pursuing? To live our lives in a place where we are known by God? Does he know you lately? Have you you been around lately? Lately? We have constant access to our heavenly Father. Do you come to him in prayer lately? Do you seek his face? Do you come to him through his word lately? He offers himself up to us as we open his word and we read, we are communing with our Father. He is speaking to us through the inspired text of scripture. It cost the blood of Jesus to secure this sort of relationship. Does he know us lately? Are you in fellowship with his people, the body of his son? If you have been in the past, that is a blessed truth. But are you today? Are you now? Because you see, this battle doesn't end until you stop breathing. This pursuit is not over until we breathe our last. We have no right to live on the capital of the past as Christians. We are a people who pursue the Lord Jesus because he has pursued us. So this is a gift that we can see in Paul as he's come to the end of his life. We see the perseverance that God grants his children set on display in his example. Another gift that we can see here through the person of the Apostle Paul is the gift of calling. When God takes an enemy and makes him his child, he grants him a calling for the rest of his life. A good finish is a difficult thing. Have you been discovering that in your walk with the Lord? That that path is not an easy path? Well, He makes that pretty clear here in the two analogies that he uses in verse 7. The first one is that of a fight. I have fought the good fight. This is what Paul told Timothy to do in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, fight the good fight of the faith. And here now Paul is able to say with confidence... I have fought the good fight. This word, this fight, this could be a battle. It could also be something like a, an athletic comp, like a boxing match. Uh, the latter would fit the second illustration maybe a little bit better. The, so if it is speaking of a boxing match, then he's got a boxing match, and he's got a race, and he's saying, I have gone to uh, the finish. But either way, whether it's a battle or a boxing match, he's trying to lay out for us that this has been difficult. This has been a struggle. The second picture he gives is that of a race. I have finished the race, the ESV says. And that word race can mean a foot race, but it's literally a course, a course that one, is, that one travels on. So, for example, outside of the New Testament, that's the word used to describe the paths of the stars and the planets. They are traveling their course. Yeah, the word is used three times in the New Testament and all by the Apostle Paul. And all to describe the same thing. It's really interesting to hear how he uses this word. The other two places that it comes up are in the book of Acts, as Paul is being quoted. And one of them is Acts 13, 25. It says there, so he's preaching and he's speaking about John the Baptist. And it says, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, and then he goes on to lay out what John the Baptist's message was. But do you hear how he's speaking about John in his life? What is John doing as he's living out his life as the forerunner of the Messiah? What's he doing? Well, he's just completing his course. He's completing the course that God has set him on. It makes me think of Ephesians 2 and the good works that have been created beforehand that we might walk in them. We are set on a course by God when we are made his children. Acts 20.24 is the third place that he uses the word. And he says something quite powerful here. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, did you hear him carefully there? He tells us what he means by finishing his course. He said, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. You hear that? His course is the ministry that he has received from the Lord Jesus. Completing that ministry is finishing his course. Do you realize this morning you've been given a course as well as a son or daughter of God? You have been set on a course. You've been given a ministry by God. It's not the same one as Paul's. It's unique to you in terms of the details. Mine, my calling, my course that God has set my life up on is unique to me in terms of the wisdom of God in putting me where and when he chose to place me. And those details are, are, are without number in terms of the differences among us. Who God has put in our lives, when, what trials has he brought you, at what times did he do that, what family has he... Has he placed you in? What church body and what context and struggles and joys here? All of the details of our callings are manifold. And yet I can tell you with absolute certainty what is at the root of the course that God has set every one of you on if you belong to him. Because it all boils down to the same, the same end goal. It's what these two analogies are trying to picture for us. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Here's what I mean by this. I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. This leads us to the third gift that we see on display from Paul in this passage. It's the gift of true faith. The faith that a believer possesses, exercises in the Lord Jesus, that faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God lest any should boast. This is a gift that God gives to his children. And Paul says here, at the end of his life, with great joy, I have kept the faith. Now this raises a question. Just what, what exactly is he saying here? I have kept the faith. That could mean a couple of things. He could be speaking subjectively. He could be saying, I, I, I find myself at the end of my life, and uh, as I examine myself, I find I have continued to put my Trust in Christ as my Savior, not in myself, not in any other Savior. I have continued to find my hope and trust and rest to be in the Lord. He could be saying that. He might be speaking objectively about his message, saying, I see at the end of my life I have um, guarded the true faith. I have kept my proclamation of the faith handed to me by the Lord Jesus. I've kept it pure. So which one of those is he saying, I don't think there's any reason and even any way that we could separate the two of those things. One doesn't exist at the exclusion of the other. They go together. One man that I read that was helpful to me in this, he he, he put it very well. He said, to force a distinction between the objective and subjective is to push beyond what Paul probably intended. He preserved the content of the gospel precisely because he believed it to be true. One of those does not happen without the other, separated from the other. And at last now, we have reached what is the crux of the matter. When we are looking at Paul at the end of his life here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, what we're finding in him is this, that a strong finish for the believer in God's eyes is the life that perseveres to its dying day in two ways. In the daily choice to depend on the Lord Jesus entirely All the way to the end. And in the holding fast to the true, pure faith that has been handed down to us. This is what it looks like to finish well. Did you wake up this morning aware of how completely you are dependent upon your Lord to keep you? Our call is to do that again tomorrow. To choose every day to depend entirely on the Lord Jesus and to know him through the pure milk of his word and his gospel. You do not know, do you? You don't know what challenges next week is going to bring you. What challenges will be presented to your faith? What obstacles will come that you've never encountered before where you have to wonder again, do I, is he really holding on to me? You have no idea what will come tomorrow, next week, next year. Do you pray for the Lord to sustain your faith in him? Because it's his sustaining hand that is the only thing keeping us from wandering away. There are some things we could ask ourselves. There are so many vocations and courses of life represented in this room. But regardless of what those details are for you, as you found and continue to find difficulty and trial in that course that God has you on, where do you run? And as you find success in those things, success in that calling, whom do you credit? Because at the end of our lives, all of the details that distinguish us will fall away before the same question. Did we finish the race? Did we fight the good fight? Did we keep the faith? Did we continue to actively trust on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and to love and cherish his truth and protect it from its enemies? Before we go to the fourth gift that we see on display here, there's one thing we ought to add to this. If this is true, if this is what a strong finish is uh, defined by and, and shown to be in Paul here, being found faithful at the end, notice what that means is not included in the in a, in a definition of the idea of finishing strong. What does finishing strong for the believer then not mean? Well, we find here pretty clearly in Paul that a strong finish is not judged by man's estimation of the results. Things from a human uh, standpoint or or, uh, or uh, sight uh, as we come to the end of our walk, of our battle. It's God that judges this. Verse 8, he says, The Lord, the righteous judge, is the one who gives out awards and honors. And if you think about what Paul looked like at this moment, let's go back and try to imagine The person of Paul, as he's writing this, what what do his circumstances look like? Well, one thing that he would look like if we were there, we might be surprised to find the extent to which he is finishing alone. Just look down at verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. I say to you that when we hear him speaking there, we are hearing words of a sad man in a human standpoint. These are friends. He finds himself alone at the end of his long and difficult journey. The first one mentioned in verse 10, Demas. Demas, we've heard from him before. Demas has been with Paul For four years now, he was with Paul when he wrote the letter to the Colossians, when he wrote Philemon. Paul called him his fellow worker. And now he has to report that Demas has fallen in love with this present world and has left him. Interesting, same word used in verse 8. that says that God will award all who have loved his appearing. He says Demas has loved this present world. Look down at verse 16. To Get more of a sense of this. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. When we look back at chapter 1, verse 15, we see it there too. You are aware, he says, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. How is Paul feeling right now? From a human standpoint, how is he looking right now in man's estimation of things? Is this someone who is at the end of his battle, his life, and he is finishing strong, he's finishing well? See, this makes his words in verse 7, though, even more significant. Because what it tells us is that Paul is choosing not to be led by his feelings. He sees these things. He knows what they look like. He feels them. He's human. But he knows too much to be deceived by those feelings. He knows that the fruit, the results of what he has been called to do are not in his hands and never have been in his hands. And he knows that what God has called him to do as he set him on this course is to persevere in his faith, to keep the faith. And so in the face of his emotions and in the face of the appearance of things from a human standpoint, Paul is able to declare joyfully in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Because he knows what scripture declares to us over and over again to be true. And that is that for the Christian, victory in our fight is secured when our faith endures unto death. It's one of these great paradoxes to the world. These great truths of the Christian faith that victory is achieved in death. We follow in the example of our Lord in that. That's the moment of our victory. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, it was said to one of the churches, Be faithful, my God, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is the call. Don't stop until you stop breathing. That's when the battle is over, and not a moment before. In Revelation 12, 11, it says, And they conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How? How do they conquer him? <clears throat> they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. That's how. Paul gets it. And his example allows us to see it lived out. What true faith is, what it rests on, and what it insists on. The final gift that we can see lived out in the, in the person of Paul at the end of his life as a result of his union with Christ is the gift of assurance. It was spoken of, sung about, prayed about this morning. The gift of assurance. Would you say in verse 8 that Paul has a pretty clear possession of assurance of his salvation, of his secure place in the loving hand of his Father? I want you to notice a connection between verse 7 and verse 8. I think verse 7 provides the Explanation, not for the uh, the salvation that he has, but for the confidence with which he speaks. Verse eight. He said in verse seven, "I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith." And then in verse eight, "Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness." There is a connection there, and it, at first it may sound a bit controversial to our ears, but it is not controversial. When when speaking of the extent to which he has assurance of his salvation he is assured of his right safe place before the Lord God there is a there is a way in which he points to his obedience to explain his assurance he points to a new affection which is displayed by obedience now notice carefully what I said he points to his obedience in reference to his level of personal assurance of salvation that is very different from saying that he points to his obedience as an explanation of his salvation. He does not do that. He would never do that, and we must never do that. But sometimes in our effort to avoid this, we end up avoiding this as well. We fail to think carefully about what the Bible says, about how an obedient life confirms the calling of God. Now, there's something that Jonathan Edwards wrote about this in his work, The Religious Affections, that I want to take a chance and read to you here. I, that may not be a good idea all of the time in a sermon. Read a Puritan uh, more than a sentence or two. I think we're going to do it. I think we can. All right? We're going to go carefully. But listen to what he says here. He's been speaking about signs that God gives to his children, that he is at work. He's sanctifying us. We're supposed to see those signs and be comforted and grow in our assurance. Okay. Those are the signs he's talking about. And Listen to what he says. No such signs are to be expected, that shall be sufficient to enable those saints certainly to discern their own good estate, who are, so here's what he's about to do, he's about to say, there are some people who inside of God are genuine believers, they are Christians, they have been saved. But they find themselves in a place in their life where God does not give them any signs to comfort them in terms of their good estate. And he's going to continue on. So who are these people? No such signs are to be expected for these people who are very low in grace or are such as have much departed from God and are fallen into a dead, carnal, and unchristian frame. We'll pause again. That's not a Christian who has an awareness of ongoing sin. Every Christian has an awareness of ongoing sin. This is a Christian who has become comfortable in a dead, carnal, unchristian frame he loves his sin. She cherishes her sin. She excuses it. He thinks it a little thing. There is no broken heart. There's no desire for repentance. That's the kind of person that he's speaking about. And he goes on. It is not agreeable to God's design that such should know their good estate. Nor is it desirable that they should. But on the contrary, it is every way best that they should not. Do you understand what he's saying there? God's design is that when we are wandering from him, we would be correspondingly less confident of our good place before him, less uh, aware of his pleasure. He does not want us. In fact, Edwards would say it is not desirable that we should have a profound, strong sense of our security befo- with the Lord. He loves us too much to want us to be happy in that place. So, on the basis of something like this, I would look at someone who has been walking for a good time in some known sin, has not wept over it, and is voicing confidence that God is indeed his Father and has put saving love on him. And I would ask him, why? What's the basis for your comfort, for your confidence? Right now, Certainly, I don't share your confidence. In fact, every day that goes on that the Lord does not break your heart and you do not repent. My confidence in your good estate before the Lord diminishes. Assurance of our salvation is a gift granted to us by God. You can finish some of these statements from Scripture to that effect, I would imagine. We know a tree by its fruit, right? Why do you call me Lord when you do not do what I say? He who does not love does not know God. Whoever says he loves God and does not love his brother is a what? A liar. Now, we must be careful here. I I tend to try to not add too many qualifications. I think a powerful point of scripture can die the death of a thousand qualifications. But there are some qualifications we should make here because assurance is such a such a personal arena. So let's just say a couple of things. We are not saying that the presence of sin in our lives should lead us to lose our assurance of our right, good place before the Lord. James tells us that we all stumble in many ways. First John 1 8 says, Whoever says he has no sin is deceiving himself. One man that I love to read Uh, John Frame, he says something very helpful here. The continuing presence of sin should not discourage us because God does not promise to make us sinlessly perfect in this life. But he does promise growth in grace, growth in holiness. We're also not saying that our assurance in a fundamental way rests on our obedience. Our assurance in a fundamental way rests on the the fact that we serve a God who keeps his promises. That's what provides the basis of our comfort and steadfast joy and assurance of our safety with the Father. But the the clarification that we see in the person of Paul here as he points to his ongoing obedience up until the end is simply to stay balanced by remembering that my experience of assurance is a gift from God. In fact, the Westminster Confession acknowledges that at times God will purposely remove assurance as an act of testing and growing his children it's a gift and furthermore my right to expect assurance diminishes as i choose to walk in rebellion against him there are many things that we take from paul's example here at the end of his life this threefold statement he gives us in verse seven is is quite profound in terms of not only the words, but the context that he's speaking in. As Paul strives to persevere, we see the gift of perseverance set on display. We see what it looks like in its in. Doesn't that make you desire it? Doesn't that make you, you hear him here after all he has been through and endured and served the Lord in. I hear him and I think to myself, I can't wait to be able to say that. I can't wait to come to the end of my days and rejoice that I have Guarded the faith. I have continued to trust. I can look back now on what now I know within is the entirety of my all of the suffering and the trials that God brought to me to train me, and I can see that He led me through every one of them. I can't wait for that day. We're reminded that as new creatures now, we are set on a course of life by God. It's a course that looks different for every one of us, and yet it's a course that defines success. In terms of keeping the faith. Not in terms of the multitude of criteria that man would offer. What does it look like from a human standpoint to end well? Oh, the list goes on. We know that is not the list by which God would have us to think. His statements clarify for us that finishing well is defined by having the faith and keeping the faith. Fighting for the supremacy of Christ in my life. And a complete dependence upon him. And his words provide us with an example as to how we are to think about the basis of our assurance of our salvation. This is a great joy to us because our hope is fixed in the same place that Paul's hope was fixed. His hope and our hope, it's all fixed on the sure blessings that come as we exist in union with Christ. That's the framework in which he lived and wrote. It's the the framework in which all of these gifts are experienced. And along with Paul, we await the coming of the Lord Jesus eagerly, who comes with the crown of righteousness to give to all who have loved his appearing. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we we seek to praise you together as a people here. We are so richly blessed at your hand. Oh, what you have done in sending your son to live on our behalf, to die in our place, to be raised as our hope and glory, the firstborn of many brothers. We thank you for what you've done. We see it, Lord. We confess to you that we see your your goodness in all things. Father, help us to continue to see that goodness. Help us to prepare ourselves, our families, our churches, so that when trials come and difficulties come, they have come after many, many months and maybe even years, if you allow it of seeing your goodness on display and preparing ourselves to always thank the name of our God. May it never be said of us that we did not acknowledge you or give you thanks. And Lord, in a special way, we thank you for your word and for allowing us to eat of it this morning, to hear from you, humble our hearts, help us through your Holy Spirit, help us to receive We thank you for your graciousness and your kindness that you've poured out on us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.